and you realize quickly how much of an impact phylloxera had on the history of the vineyard landscape. A lot of French producers went to Argentina or went to Spain when phylloxera was really impacting France. And that, of course, had implications on the winemaking techniques and traditions in those countries. They had to rip up. Well, everything was dead. The vines were dead. So it probably changed the way they planted, you know, what varieties they planted, how they planted, their trellising system. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, everything from the type of grapes that were planted and how they were planted, doing field blends anymore. So just doing monocrops effectively in different vineyards. It really changed in many respects for the better. It really forced winemakers to reassess how they made wine, how they did their work. And as a result, we're now blessed with those learnings. Have a thirst to learn about wine? Do you love stories about wonderfully obsessive people, hauntingly beautiful places, and amusingly awkward social situations? Well, that's the blend here on the Unreserved Wine Talk podcast. I'm your host, Natalie McLean, and each week I share with you unfiltered conversations with celebrities in the wine world, as well as confessions from my own tipsy journey as I write my third book on this subject. I'm so glad you're here. Now pass me that bottle, please, and let's get started. Welcome to episode 223. Can you imagine a world without wine? Ah, horrors. (laughs) How did an author create a new genre of the wine thriller based on a winemaker's worst nightmare? And what if the root louse phylloxera that destroyed most of the European vineyards in the 1850s returned, but was even more destructive? Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> You're going to hear all those tips and stories in my chat with Stephen Lane, author of the wine mystery novel, Root Cause. Now a quick update on my upcoming memoir, Wine Witch on Fire, Rising from the Ashes of Divorce, Defamation and Drinking Too Much. So now that my book has gone to the printer, I'm feeling a little bit of an empty nest syndrome. Yeah, sure, my manuscript is still in my computer, but the memoir is now out of my hands. Can't make any more changes. I can't stop it from going out into the world. And most of all, I can't control what people will think of it. That last one, that's the killer for someone like me who always wants to be in control. But just as I had to open up on the pages as I wrote it, now I have to open up as I face the public and its reaction. Whether in interviews or on social media or through the emails that will come in, I need to keep responding with vulnerability and an open heart. And I know the negative reviews will come. That's what a book does. It provokes both positive and negative responses. So just as my son, who graduates from computer engineering in May, will have to go out and find his way in the world, so too will this book. It'll have a life and a journey that is completely separate from me. And it's probably best if I'm not there to interfere as someone is reading my book. I can imagine standing over their shoulder asking, hey, hey, what did you think of that insight? You didn't miss it, did you? You seem to be turning those pages pretty fast. (laughs) All I can do now is hope that it's received in the spirit it was written, with love and a desire for hope, justice, and resilience for all those who read it. Here's a review from Lisa Marsano, an early reader from Chicago. 
I love a good overcoming obstacle story. I felt the author's anxiety at the end of her marriage, wondering how to pay the bills, watching herself be canceled online, and trying to manage her drinking, both professionally and personally. I also felt the peace she achieved and appreciated the insights she gained throughout the process. I see how much the author learned about herself and what she could have done differently. Not many are able to evaluate themselves objectively, and I love that because it's true for all of us. If you liked the book Wine Girl, then you'll like this one. It's another look at the wine industry from another woman. I was made more aware of the industry by reading Wine Girl by Victoria James. Natalie's story sheds light on cyberbullying, with an emphasis on the cyber part, because they were cowards in person. I suspect that translates to all industries as folks are much more confident while hiding behind a computer. My favorite parts were her getting her writing business off the ground, facing the bullies in person, and maintaining poise while doing a TV segment on pairing wine with fast food, despite those who mocked her for the idea. Again, I really like the insights that the author gained while telling her story. I believe this book would pair nicely with any book club. Great storytelling about a triumph over tragedy, overcoming obstacles, and finding peace. Five stars. Thank you, Lisa. I would love to hear from you if your book club reads this. There is a book club guide that suggests wines and questions as you read the book and tips on organizing an informal wine tasting or a book club, whatever you need. And that is free, by the way, on my website at nataliemcclain.com forward slash witchwine, as in W-I-T-C-H. I've posted a link to a blog post called Diary of a Book Launch in the show notes at nataliemcclain.com forward slash 223. This is also where I share more behind-the-scenes stories about the journey of taking this memoir from idea to publication. If you want a more intimate insider seat beside me on this journey, please let me know that you'd like to become an early reader and get a sneak peek at the book before it's published. Email me at natalie at nataliemcclain.com. Okay, on with the show. Can you imagine a world without wine? Ah! <laughs> what if the rootlouse phylloxera that destroyed most of European vineyards in the 1850s returned, but it was even more destructive? And have you heard the story about how a winemaker got into hot water with counterfeit wine, a local gang, immigration authorities, and the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives? Holy smokes, yes, we have all of those stories and more for you with our guest. Kirkus Reviews calls Stephen Lane's first wine thriller, Root Cause, quote, an entertaining wine-soaked mystery. Mm, my kind. The Washington Post wrote, quote, if Michael Pollan and Dan Brown sat down over a bottle of Barolo and brainstormed a novel based on the neuroses of the natural wine movement, they might have come up with something like Root Cause. <laughs> I love that. As an award-winning restaurateur and hotelier, Stephen has traveled the world working in luxury hotels such as the Ritz, Hilton, Starwood, Marriott, and Pan Pacific. He developed his passion for wine as a sommelier and beverage director in London, England. Since then, he's visited hundreds of wineries around the world. During the pandemic, Stephen worked the 2020 harvest as a cellarman for three months to learn the winemaking process firsthand from winemakers at Mission Hill Family Estate Winery in British Columbia. And in 2021, he worked at Trius Winery in Niagara-on-the-Lake, 
where again, he put his winemaking and forklift driving skills to use. He is currently living in London, writing his next wine thriller, The Psalm, and is looking forward to the release of a, yet another wine thriller soon called Jupiter's Blood. And he joins us now from his home in London, England. Stephen, welcome. We're so glad you're here. Hi, Natalie. It's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Ah, terrific. Well, I just have so many questions for you. But before we dive into your books, you have lived in nine different countries. At least that was the count I saw recently. What about travel appeals to you beyond sort of experiencing new cultures and people, that sort of thing? Well, aside from experiencing new cultures and people, I think you learn a lot about yourself, really. So I've learned a lot about myself in traveling and learned a lot about, I mean, the world, of course. And they say the cure to anything from ignorance to racism is travel. And I love how they compare travel to being a library, whereas if you don't move, you've only ever read one page. Oh, I love that. So, I mean, there's so many great anecdotes about what travel does to broaden the mind, broaden the horizons, and it really does do that. And it's helped me put a lot of my life into perspective and my work in perspective. And it's eternally humbling to see how people live and work in different parts of the world. And at the end of the day, we all come down to the same thing. We want to be happy. We want to take care of our families and we want to be successful in life. Hmm. That could be a TED Talk, the intro to a TED Talk, Stephen. Very nice. Yeah. Very nice. I love that, your perspective on travel. So how did you first become involved in the wine industry? Well, I was working at a hotel here in London, and I was in, working in the banqueting department. And part of my job was to organize all the pre-orders for wines for big banquets. And so we've worked very closely with the wine list. And after about six months of being there, the directors of the hotel came to me and said, great, it's time to update the wine list. Little did I know that was my responsibility. <laughs> So a bit daunting at the time. I didn't have a lot of experience in the wine industry or with wines. And this was a wine list that generated between 26 and 30 million pounds worth of alcohol sales per year. So oh my goodness. upwards of 35 million, 38 million Canadian. Thankfully, I had a very good team of distributors and people that I worked with to buy the wines. And they guided me through the process. So we said we wanted this type of wine, a Sauvignon Blanc or a Chenin Blanc. And then we would do a tasting, look at the brands, look at the pricing. And it all came together. So really, really good introduction. And through that experience, I did get to meet a lot of winemakers and got invited to go see Bollinger in Champagne, got out to Louis Jadot in Burgundy, a few chateaux in Bordeaux. And then, of course, the travel bug, the wine bug just bit me and it never let go. Oh, that's great. You seem to have gotten your backdoor master of wine with all that tasting and traveling. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Good for you. Uh, Somebody else paid for it even better. <laughs> <laughs> so what was the moment you realized you wanted to write about wine or wine thrillers? Well, I started writing thrillers back when I was in university in Canada, and then I was in a psychology class, and they were talking about a... Oh, where'd you go to school? I'm just curious. I went to Queens. Ah, okay. So I went, did my history degree in Queens, cool. so obviously working in hotels was a natural course. <laughs> <laughs> but I also did an MBA at Guelph University in hospitality. So while I was at Queens, I was taking a class in psychology, and they talked about a phenomenon called iatrogenesis, whereby doctors implant memories in people's minds. I thought, wow, what if that was something that really happened, and what would that look like if it was a fictional story? I read a lot of fiction at the time, and because I just had this idea in my mind, I thought, well, maybe I'll write about it. So I wrote my first novel, Lethal Suggestions, based on that. Years later, I wrote another thriller called Iconoclast, a religious conspiracy thriller, back when Dan Brown was very popular. I thought, oh, maybe I'll have a go at it. So enjoy the process. But it was only when I met Joel Peterson here in London at a wine tasting from Ravenswood, the head winemaker at Ravenswood Wines. And he told me about a book called The Botanist and the Vintner by Christy Campbell. That's when I read that book and I had another aha moment 
what if phylloxera were to come back? And that was the genesis of the story idea for Root Cause. Wow. I love the premise, as we know from researching and writing about wine. It was just devastating. Phylloxera, how much of the vineyards, was it like 80, 90% of the vineyards in Europe? Exactly. I mean, it's hard to think back now just how destructive it was across France, across Spain, across the world, really. And it wasn't just a period of a year or two. I mean, we're not talking a COVID length amount of time. It was over decades and it took years to discover how to prevent it in future by grafting vines. And to this day, there's still no real prevention except for grafting vines, which isn't the best solution necessarily out there. Yes. And just a quick catch up for anyone not familiar with phylloxera, they had to eventually graft North American vines, hardier rootstock. They had to have those on the bottom and graft those with the European vines. So those North American roots are everywhere now to prevent this. It was a root louse, an aphid, that ate away at the roots of the vines and killed them, right? Yes. And ironically, that came from America initially on ships. So it was an American cause to the problem, but also an American solution to the problem. <laughs> that sounds like the ultimate <laughs> marketing plan that some companies Indeed, use today. Yes. Here's your problem. Here's your solution. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't oh, know that. I didn't know that. Yeah. Is there anything that yeah. would surprise us about phylloxera? The devastation is certainly surprising, but the aphid or anything about it that surprised you while you were researching and writing this book? I mean, I'm a Spanish wine scholar, an Italian wine scholar, and a French wine scholar. I had a lot of time off during COVID, <laughs> thankfully, so it allowed me to study. And when you're doing all these studies and researching all these different areas, you don't realize, or you do realize quickly, how much of an impact phylloxera had on the history of the vineyard landscape. So a lot of French producers went to Argentina, for instance, or went to Spain when phylloxera was really impacting France. And that, of course, had implications on the winemaking techniques and traditions in those countries. Hmm. That's amazing. And again, they would have also had to replant in a major way. They had to rip up. Well, everything was dead. The vines were dead. So yeah. it probably yeah. changed the way they planted, you know, what varieties they planted, how they planted, their trellising system. I mean, they had to start from scratch anyway. So I'm sure they had to rethink a lot of things. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, everything from the type of grapes that were planted and how they were planted, doing field blends anymore. So just doing monocrops effectively in different vineyards. It really changed, again, the whole landscape of winemaking in a lot of different countries. But in many respects, for the better as well. So yeah. it really forced winemakers to reassess how they made wine, how they grew grapes, how the vigneron did their work. And as a result, we're now blessed with those learnings. True. We are the beneficiaries. And just before we keep going on that, can you recall sort of the best moment of your writing career so far? I'm sure there'll be many more to come, but... <laughs> Certainly getting Root Cause published, but further to that, just getting engaged with so many people on Instagram, on Facebook, on Twitter, meeting people, meeting winemakers and sharing with them with my book. So it's been a fascinating journey and every winemaker has a story. Every wine has a story. So it's always fascinating talking to these people and understanding where they came from and what the stories are behind the scenes. And it's all grist for the mill rather. It is, isn't it? So eventually you'll see a lot of these little stories and anecdotes I pick up along the way in my books. That's great because people get to learn about the industry at the same time that they're wrapped up in this thriller story. I certainly hope so. Yeah. I always enjoy reading thrillers and books where I'm learning along the way or being exposed to a different part of the world or a different industry that I'm not familiar with. Yeah. And again, being wrapped up in a great story. Yes. That's what I hope to do as well. Entertain, educate, and just let people know what the wine industry is all about. Exactly. Always have to entertain before I educate or else no one's paying attention <laughs> or gets to page 17 in your book. <laughs> 
I do need to stop myself occasionally. People might not be too interested in hearing the history of a grape for three pages. So <laughs> I would be, but then again, that's a pretty small niche audience, isn't it? <laughs> I think so. So that's the feedback I quite often get from my beta readers when they say, okay, Steve, you're info dumping now. We don't need to know all of this. Just tell us what's right. happening next. <laughs> right. Oh, gosh. I hear you because, you know, there were certain parts of my memoir where I wanted to slot in something that was really sounded like an essay or just, you know, yeah. some nice description of vineyard or something. And it's like, you know what? That's really not moving the story forward. You'd, you exactly. really do have it's to- not serving a story. Yeah, you have to kill <laughs> your darlings, <laughs> as I guess Hemingway yeah. said. <laughs> so tell me just while well, you mentioned them, the beta readers, how does that work for you? Who are they and what do they do for you as you're writing a book? Well, initially, like with many writers, it was a very small pool of my family. But over time, I developed a bigger pool of individuals I worked with to read the books. And it was friends. But now I work with a group of writers with international thriller writers. So one's a doctor. One writes TV shows for everything from House to whatever else TV shows are on these days. But it's a really, really good writer. So we meet every month. We all submit 5,000 words a month. We review each other's work. And it's great because I get a lot of feedback from people from around the world at different levels of their writing. And I find if they're all saying the same thing, then there's probably something I need to fix or address. So I do get a lot of feedback that way. And reading their works and editing their works, I'm learning along the way as well. So it's critical, I think, if you're going to be a writer, and I'll tell this to anybody getting into the industry, make sure you have a strong group of beta readers who will guide you along the way and help you out in terms of improving your writing. Absolutely. Yeah. I found beta readers to be indispensable and they will catch things that your eye will not see, even if you're reading your own text aloud. Like, you know, I used words that sound the same, but had different spellings and would have been the wrong meaning, like disillusion. I was disillusioned with life versus disillusion, like of a company or yes. stalking and stalking, <laughs> you know, prey <Yeah>. versus, <laughs> you know, stalking a company store. So yeah, I rely on them and they are so valuable to the writing process. Yeah. And they tend to make sure you're not being too self-indulgent in yes. writing. So yes. the little inside jokes you want to put in there, the little things you want to say that make sense to you, but nobody else, they'll catch you on it and they'll tell you, Steve, come on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Or just flat out, I'm bored. <laughs> okay. Move on. Yeah. And the more critical they can be, the better. So that's why your family members aren't always the best beta readers. Because they love you and they'll go, oh, this is great. <laughs> Just like when you brought home your yeah. spelling bee test in kindergarten. <laughs> Way to go. <laughs> yeah. As a writer, that's not what you need. No, you need a real critic. <laughs> exactly. You already talk about meeting Joel Peterson, winemaker at Ravenswood in California. We've talked about the premise of the book, If Phylloxera Came Back. Did you put a twist on that or was it the same phylloxera or a new virulent strain of phylloxera? What was a little bit more of the storyline in addition to phylloxera comes back and wine is under threat worldwide? Well, without giving too much right. away, we don't want spoilers. the premise of the story is that it's based on a genetically mutated strain of phylloxera. So it's an intentional spread of phylloxera. Right. And the whole story revolves around who would do that, why would they do that, and how on earth would you stop it? Yeah, exactly. Oh, that's great. It's a who done it and why. Yeah, that's very much a mystery, thriller, conspiracy genre type book. Dan Brown or Agatha Christie 101. Yeah. <laughs> the foundations. My mind is probably a little too dark, but I've always wondered if something like phylloxera jumped species and went into human beings and attacked our nervous system or something like that. Have you ever speculated about sort of wine things, wine diseases going into him? Probably not. <laughs> I don't know. but Not yet, not yet. but certainly it could be. A- 
an idea for a future book? Yeah, who knows? <laughs> yeah, I know. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah. Rather scary to think about. We've just gone through COVID, I so I think maybe the appetite isn't there for That's that kind true. of thriller. Yeah, keep it to <laughs> yeah. vines and wines. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so you've created this new genre of wine thrillers. You said you were always reading fiction and thrillers in university. You started with medical. Do you have some favorite mystery thriller writers? Well, when I was young, I think I read all of Stephen King. So that's where my dark sense of humor and dark writing comes from. Yes. I love medical thrillers, which are very technical in many respects. So everything like Robin Cook, Michael Palmer, Michael Crichton. But I really enjoy thriller writers too, like James Rollins or Matthew Riley. Douglas Preston and Lincoln Child have really great intelligent thrillers. So I like thrillers that make you think. And again, that take place in a world or an industry that maybe you're not familiar with that you can learn along the way. Because when you start talking to winemakers or anybody in any industry, there's all sorts of fascinating aspects to their work. You think, oh my God, that'd be a great thing for a book. And in Dragon Vine, my second wine thriller, I was chatting with, oh God, who's the winemaker now? Uh, Bruce Cakebread in Napa Valley. And we were chatting about stuck fermentations. And because I asked him, what's the worst thing that can happen to you on a day-to-day basis? And he said, stuck fermentations. Oh, wow. And what is that? Just for those who don't know, a stuck fermentation. It's when the fermentation of the wine stops. So of course, when you've got your juice in the tank, it's fermenting and the alcohol is being created. And if you run out of fuel or you run out of sugar, the fermentation stops. And if you have a stuck fermentation because there's not enough yeast or not enough sugar, then you'll have a big vat of Kool-Aid essentially or semi-fermented wine, which would just be for waste. So you've got to unstick the fermentation. And there's a series of different ways you can do that. And I I talk about that in the novel. So there's a challenge that the the young winemaker has to solve on the spot. Cool. You just rattled off a list of great mystery writers. We'll include those in the show notes if people want a reading list, because I'm sure they'd love to tap into your books and then segue right over to those. I hadn't heard of some of them, so I'd love to get your okay. list afterwards. I read very widely. So <laughs> right now I'm reading a book. Absolutely. I'm reading some nonfiction books. One's called Making Numbers Count. It's all about how to communicate the power of numbers without using numbers. Oh. So it's a fascinating book. So yeah, I like to read a bit of everything really. I was a history major, so I read a lot. Excellent. Polymath. So what was the inspiration for your second book, Dragon Vine? Maybe tell us a little bit about what the storyline is, again, with no spoilers. Yeah. Well, I've been reading about, I mean, this is going back years now, I've been reading about lost grape varieties. So these grape varieties that you people find behind a small wall in a small Italian town that nobody has seen for years, and, and then winemakers are bringing them back. So Torres in Spain is doing this. They're looking for lost varieties and bringing them back. Uh, you see this in Italy as well with uh, Timoroso, for instance, a grape variety that was kind of cast aside and is now resurging in popularity. And it occurred to me that there might be some great grape varieties around the world. And I was working in Hong Kong at the time when the story came to mind. So I thought, what if there was some incredible Chinese variety that somehow got to America, was cross-blended and became a very popular variety. So again, I don't want to give too much away, probably have just now, but. (laughs) Oh, no, no, that's intriguing. It's how would that unfold? Yeah. Yeah. That's how the story came to mind. And once I had the story idea, the big what if, then I started creating the characters around it, the motivations that they would have to solve the mystery or to perpetuate the mystery. And then the story unfolds from there. Is counterfeiting involved in this as well? Yes, very much so. I mean, counterfeiting is huge, especially if you're in Asia. We all hear these stories of uh, there's more fake Petrus in uh, China than there is Petrus made around the world. So every industry is affected. There's also, I mean, there's fake websites, there's fake cereal, there's fake jewelry. Every industry is affected by counterfeiting. Wine, especially because of its value or perceived value. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And so, you know, there's always what happens in a book, but What is the story really about? And I think I might have heard this from you in another interview, but this story is about 
you know, family, what you'll do to defend family, love, like the bigger themes. What are those in this book? It is a book about family at the very beginning. It's no surprise. It's in the first chapter, so I'm not giving anything away. But the main character's father dies in a California wildfire. He's left with his younger sister, rather, to take care of. Their mom passed away years ago, but there's a whole issue of legacy. Do they keep the winery? Do they continue trying to make this wine that nobody believed in? It just comes down to legacy and family. And similarly, in Root Cause, the main character, Corvina Guerra, she has a very strained relationship with her father, which mends over the course of the book and until the end when she realizes what he was actually doing to protect her and raise her and give her everything she needed in life to be successful. So all the main themes are about family and my stories and about love. And, you know, it can't just be about just being a thriller. There's got to be more to it. We all want to read a great story about people. Yeah. The universal themes. It reminds me of a page right out of Yellowstone. You know, if anybody's watching that, I guess everybody's watching it now. (laughs) What they'll do to defend their Montana ranch. It's Kevin Costner. But this sounds like one of those family dramas. Yeah. <laughs> so is there anything that surprised you in researching this book, either about counterfeiting or grape varieties, anything yeah, that might surprise us? Well, as a history major, I'd love to research. So when I was researching this book, what they'll say about writers quite often is you'll only put about 10% of what you learn in a book. And that's for sure the case with the Chinese wine industry. I did a ton of research on Chinese wine, the grape varieties, the history, the first emperor, and only about 10% actually makes it into the book in some way or another. But yeah, the rich history of winemaking in China really surprised me and the sheer variety and the sheer... I guess, future of the winery industry and the grape industry in China is phenomenal. I mean, they're going to be surpassing many other wine producing countries in the next 10, 20, 30 years. So it's a region we all need to keep an eye on. And there's a lot of people going out there to support it and to help build it. Interesting. Well, there you have it. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Stephen. Here are my takeaways. Number one, the premise of Stephen's novel Can you imagine a world without wine hooked me from the beginning? I can't imagine erasing all those great times I've shared with friends and family over a glass or two, let alone not doing the work I love in this field. Number two, I really like how he takes a winemaker's worst nightmare and then ups the ante by having the root louse phylloxera come back as even more destructive. This just doesn't seem to be an impossibility with today's climate change as well as the mutation of viruses that spread around the world quickly. And three, I enjoyed Stephen's insights into how travel changed his perspective. I think each trip, each location brings out a different piece in us. In the show notes, you'll find my email contact, the full transcript of my conversation with Stephen, links to his website and book, and where you can find the live stream video versions of these conversations on Facebook and YouTube Live every Wednesday at 7 p.m. You'll also find a link to my free Ultimate Guide to Wine and Food Pairing. That's all in the show notes at nataliemcclain.com forward slash 223. Email me if you have a sip, tip, question, or would like to be an early reader of my memoir at natalie at nataliemcclain.com. If you missed episode 13, go back and take a listen. I chat about blending humor and wine in South Africa with Charles Back of Fairview Wine. He is hilarious. I'll share a short clip with you now to whet your appetite. When the farmers have an altercation in France, what they normally do, they drive into Paris with big truckloads of manure and dump it on the Champs-Élysées. So I thought, let's, being African, we're going to be a bit more sophisticated than that. 
and I vacuum packed some goat droppings to take to the ambassador because they've got beautiful gardens and I thought they could be fertilized with some perfect goat droppings. And I presented to him with a beautiful breed that we make at Fairview and obviously a magnum of goats Rome. And it all ended in a good spirit and they stopped pursuing the trademark infringement. And today I own the trademark goats to Rome. That is fabulous. And did the publicity help at all? I think that's the reason why they stopped. <laughs> I, I wish they carried on because I subsequently registered goat roti, which is a roasted goat. Then we also had Bordeaux. A doe is a female goat, so she's very bored because she's only permitted to grow five varieties of grape, which is terrible. If you liked this episode, please email or tell one friend about it this week, especially someone you know who'd be interested in the wines, tips, and stories we shared. You won't want to miss next week when we continue our chat with Stephen Lane. Thank you for taking the time to join me here. I hope something great is in your glass this week. Perhaps a Chilean wine made from pre-phylloxera vines. You don't want to miss one juicy episode of this podcast, especially the secret full-bodied bonus episodes that I don't announce on social media. So subscribe for free now at nataliemcclain.com forward slash subscribe. Meet me here next week. Cheers. Cheers.